Before we start the show, here's a quote from our host, Shonda Smith-Baker, about our next chosen guest, Dr. Scott Hagen, who worked with city leaders and representatives of George Floyd's family to offer the North Central University as a space for the Minneapolis Memorial Service for Floyd. And I quote, As we are nearing the anniversary of Floyd's murder and going into the trial, I've been thinking quite a bit about the moments and events following his death, which included the memorial service that was held here in Minneapolis that I attended. I remember sitting at the service when he announced the scholarship fund and thinking, I wonder how he got involved with this. And so I wanted to follow up and find out what it meant for him to be involved. After all, this was not a standard funeral. It was a moment of global grief. So again, thank you for, for joining. Uh, very, very honored, very blessed uh, to jump into all the unfinished business that we're all called and assigned to right now. We just, it, we're in that either the courageous middle or the compromised middle. I don't know what all we're in right now, but if we don't keep talking, uh, then we it really is hopeless, so. Yeah, can you give us just a little bit of insight on on your background and maybe even your, your approach? Like how did you arrive where you are right now? Um, first of all, um, I kind of have to contextualize all of my uh, behaviors with my upbringing. So I moved 27 times by the time I was 16. Grew up in complete chaos, lived in a car, lived uh, on people's couches. My dad was committing crimes in our house. Uh, I love my dad. He he died many, many years ago. Uh, he had a great um, kind of a reconciling at the last year of his life with his family and with God. So I'm at peace with my my dad. But growing up, it was just pure chaos against my mother and against, you know, I found out I had siblings I didn't know existed from other, it just... And then we moved 27 times. So I went to a different school every year, K through eighth grade. So I never was in the, on the same playground every, every September was new. So a lot of people look at that and they ask me, hey, how'd you become a college president? I really feel like God gave me a tremendous head start in childhood. And they go, oh, what money, education? I said, no, chaos. Uh, chaos is where the competency all, all flows from. Because when you're on a different playground every September, K through eighth grade, and everything is strange all the time, you either learn to fight uh, or you learn to get along, make friends, and step into spaces that are completely new and different. And you got to learn how to navigate that. So I think all the people skills, all the empathy, Shonda, comes out of the chaos. Now, it doesn't always end up that way. I had a really a powerful experience with the Lord in my life that I have filtered my life through that. And instead of all this floating space debris of these experiences that I can't reconcile, like, man, why'd that happen? Why'd that happen? Why'd that happen? Um, I, I was able to form a narrative about my life. Um, and once I had a narrative that was, I could connect, the anger kind of went away when I was 18. And I just began to leverage all of those experiences uh, toward uh something redemptive and good in my life. And so everything up until the Floyd funeral uh, really is born out of uh, all the chaos of childhood, which gives you an ability to feel what I call a disquiet in your heart. You can feel 
something is at work, something important is next to you, something unfinished, unrealized. Um, and that noticing skill, I think, is all born out of that early madness of, of life. So went to college, was into basketball big time, uh, played at a small school, had a great time. I, I'm the all-time leading scorer, uh, record holder at my college. It'll never be broken because the college is now closed. So my record, my records are safe. Um, but um, found a wonderful girl when I was uh, 19 and got married when I was 19. Uh, we barely knew each other. And uh, so I, I broke all the rules, but it was the, the greatest stability of my life was driving away from my wedding. Um, you know, I had some new Tupperware and uh, some new sheets and uh, things were stable. And so uh, she had a car, I didn't, but I fell in love big and wonderful and no idea that, you know, here we are 30, 38 years later, four adult kids, 10 grandkids, and how life has unfolded. We had no dreams, no visions of life. Then you didn't think in those terms. No one said, what was your passion in 19, you know, 80, uh, 80, 81. It's just like, get a job, pay the bills, uh, be responsible. There was no dreaming really of the future. Um, but uh, great people came in our life, stability. Uh, I started working at a church. Um, it was an all-white church in the heart of Silicon Valley. I was right next to uh, the, the greatest emergence of ideas. Um, you know, there, there's a great uh, documentary out now on Hulu called General Magic. If you ever get a chance to watch this, it's about who really invented the iPhone. And that was all happening down the street uh, from where I spent the 1980s. But it was an all-white church and a very wealthy church, very typical American Christianity at that time, you know. I would begin to notice one, one African-American in the choir, uh, that, that model. Uh, and as long as you could sing, then you were allowed in um, to the church. I mean, I'm being kind of raw and brutal in how I would describe that. But in retrospect, you know, it was. Those were the rules. Um, I was in my 20s. I didn't have any great moral courage or moral awareness at that time, other than this kind of deeper disquiet. Um, I don't want to talk too much here, but I, this, I had an experience in sixth grade, Shonda, that really changed my life. Um, I was very tall, very skinny. My parents put me in school when I was four because it was free daycare. So I was always a year and a half behind everybody. And when you're a boy and you don't got no hair on your legs and, and you're in eighth grade and you look like you're a fifth grader, it's not a very pleasant experience. The bullying was big time uh, in the locker room and all that kind of stuff. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but um, I was behind, but I was tall and skinny and I could play basketball, you know, even in sixth grade. So every recess we'd go out there and I can remember all my friends, I won't name them. We'd, we'd line up and uh, the two captains were always the same two bullies and it's pouring rain. We're in Bellevue, Washington, in this covered area, one basketball hoop. So if you didn't get into that game, then you were you didn't get in. So they'd pick sides. I'll never forget this day. We had this kid named Dana. He was a Hispanic American kid. But back in the 70s, they integrated special needs children into the main classrooms. So Dana was in our classroom. He had a huge hearing aid. He was completely deaf, but he would speak, but he would speak four times louder in his language and this is 1974, Dana's in the classroom, but he was a little bit older. He was the best athlete in the whole school, strong. He had muscles, he could run fast. And we were picking teams. And I was um, skinny young guy, but I was the tallest. And so 
I remember it got down to, uh, there's two spots left, me, a kid named Tommy Armis, who was about four foot nothing, who couldn't dribble. I love you, Tommy. You're on my Facebook now. But he knows he couldn't dribble. And me, and I was already picked. And it was down to Tommy and Dana. And we're talking not even on the same planet uh, 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 as far as that. Well, the, the guy picked Tommy. And I'm just a kid, and I'll never forget, Dana turned away and walked out of that covered area. He let out a groan that um, was the most haunting guttural frustration. Um, I will never forget it. Now, I'm in sixth grade. I really should have been in fifth grade. I had no moral strength, but I'll never forget that sound of that kid making that noise um, and just turning away, walking into the rain. And I was looking at it, no one cared. No one gave a rip in sixth grade. And, but that noise, I really think in that moment, God was calling me or showing me something that would be important for my whole life. Now, I know that sounds self-righteous. I don't, I'm not self-righteous in this, uh, but I think something happened I've never forgot that. And when usually I tell a story, it makes me emotional to talk about that kid. But that happened. And I think that uh, framed kind of something my whole life of being able uh, to feel, I don't know why uh, my family, we were, you know, when I say out of money, we were out of money. Water got turned off all the time in childhood. My job was to go to the neighbor, put the hose under the fence. And then we brushed our teeth in baking soda. And if you've never brushed your teeth with baking soda, it's hard to explain to somebody what the combination of baking soda and that metallic taste of your neighbor's rubber hose, those two combinations, it's hideous. Uh, I could get lots of stories. We all, all have them, you know. But all of that was formation for me. I get into this in the 80s. I'm a youth pastor in an all-white context. And late 80s, I just really began to, um, in my study of scripture, uh, started to see, you know, every tribe and tongue is around the throne of God. And I said, Lord, how come the church in heaven, how come the church on earth doesn't look like the church in heaven? And I wrote this very simple statement, 1988, in my journal. I didn't know that that would really frame a lot of my life. So then I planted a church in 1980 or 1990, I was 26. The Lord blessed the church, uh, became a great church. Uh, it was it was in a typical multi-ethnic, but with a white pastor, which was really the motif of the 90s and the 2000s is multicultural churches meant people of color were attending churches led by a white pastor. And I might have had black staff, but uh, people didn't attend. White people were not attending a church led by a black pastor, but black Americans were attending churches led by white pastors. So in this evolution of whatever is unfolding in this country, was that good? Was that bad? Did I feed the beast? Did I feed the monster? I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I look back, you know, we had a church of a couple thousand people, about 60% of it was non-white. It was, it was hailed as one of the great churches in the country. I don't know. I'm in my thirties. I think I'm doing it right. I think things, good things are happening. Uh, um, we really developed, I had some tremendous friends uh, that guided me through the Rodney King riots, that guided me through the OJ trial. And, uh, you know, the three most important words helped me understand this. We sincerely kept asking ourselves that. Um, so it sure looked and felt meaningful, like something. But I think for me is, um, I call it winning the well. Jesus went to the well. He won the well, the woman's heart.
because that was always good in my life, I could win the well of relationship through personal humility in front of one person and our friendship. I always assumed that the power of that friendship transcended any world that black man was living outside of our, our relationship. I didn't think about his world outside of us because we were so good. I assumed that anything he's facing out there systematically in this country is minimized because you and I are so good with each other. We love each other. We're friends. So that transcends your world. What's happened, I think, in the last few years of my life is realizing the deep flaw of that mindset for me personally, that just because you and I are good, we're having this cool thing between us, doesn't mean it's good for your life because the world outside of us, we're, we're having coffee at Starbucks, we're at church, we're doing our thing. We're having fun. We're going to the Sacramento Kings games. We're going to 49er games. You and I are good. I was assuming that was uh, so big, so wonderful that it mitigated all of the outside world. I've come to shift in my thinking uh, completely and really reconcile that flawed approach. We still got to win the well and be loving to the per person that we meet. But the, the broader issues, um, um, swallow that up. And it's it's the greater reality of Black America than the reality of you and me hanging out at church or at coffee, if that makes sense. Yeah, it I does. Think, I think engaging in the systemic world, uh, the non-Christian systemic racism world, um, for me, has been the shift in my life. Okay, so do you really think it's the non-Christian systemic world? No, I don't. Okay, so, so, I, 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 so can you rephrase that or... Yeah. Add context. So I would say it's the non you and me as Christians, our world. When I say you and me, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. So I say the Christian world, I'm not talking about the church world, other church, the church, my church, my denomination. I was, I mean, beyond you and me as Christians and this wonderful joy we have when we hang out and, and eat and fellowship and friendship the world outside that, um, practiced by Christians, practiced by churches, practiced by denominations, um, is broken um, um, deeply. And so thank you for clarifying that. That's, that's, that's where I'm coming from on that. Um, let's go back to Dana for a minute, because um, there was so much goodness in what you just shared and what I thought about with the example of Dana and that sort of guttural response in a moment of isolation, minimization, racism, whatever you want to throw into that, I think that we're confronted more often than we pay attention to of people that are in spaces with us that aren't picked, that aren't selected, that are being reduced. Because I think sometimes when we think about racism and eradicating it, we think about it in big, big picture. But there's everyday Dana's in a lot of spaces. So the conflict that we just talked about between my one-on-one -on -one with my own personal epiphany that, hey, this ain't solving anything, just you and me here. I got to engage in a much larger world uh, and use my voice, the scepter of influence, you know, how, how do I do this? Um, it's easy then to lose heart that the one-on-one -on -one encounters and choices and decisions that we make with one another, that they're like meaningless. They're not. 
that really is how culture is transformed by the choosing. Um, so you got this weird thing, you got this massive ocean you're trying to deal with with a tablespoon, but you're also sitting at this well of Samaria with this person that's a Samaritan, I'm a Jew, we're not supposed to have dealings with each other, but we are. We still have to be great in that space right there, one-to-one. I, I often thought, why did these, why did these 10 sixth grade boys in Bellevue, Washington in 1974, these are not sophisticated, developed minds. These aren't people who've come with deep decisions for separation. Why was it so easy and inherent and instinctual to not see uh, the pain or to not to create inclusion with Dana? Why was that so simple to say, I pick Tommy, kid walks away, groans, and everybody's laughing and enjoying and playing hoop and nobody's even glancing at the experience of this person? I think it's our, our nature that we're born with for one. And I think it's nothing is being modeled to those children by their parents. There's no conversations. There's nothing being spoken of. The awareness is not being passed on by a father and a mother to a son and a daughter in that house in the earliest stages of life. And um, that's why that was so easily done in 74. Um, I don't know if I have a simple answer to that. That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that question. Well, do you think it's different now? Yes and no. The conversations are happening, but they're from a basis of a, a baseline of animosity oh. and threat. So I think children are being taught early on by parental reaction uh, to feel the threat of something, oh. not the pr- not the presence of something unrealized and good, but the presence of something that is threatening and jeopardizing. So let's be cautious and reserved toward one another. Um, you know, I call it the spirit of the, of the, that withdrawn folded arm, like, Hey, I don't know where you're coming from. Uh, I got to vet you, uh, before I, uh, I got to see if you're, if you're domesticated, if, before I let you in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's brutal, but I don't know our way out of this thing other than this, um, and crying out to God and forming legitimate conversations and staying personally humble uh, to blind spots. I'm 58. Uh, I'm seeing things in my life. I, I ask God all the time, man, am I, have I fed the beast in this? Am I feeding the beast or am I involved in any kind of solution here? Because it feels like we've taken a huge step backwards or maybe at the molecular level, it's metastasized and we can finally eradicate it from the body because we can feel the lump, we can feel the tumor. It's, it's gone from molecular to that, to that other stage. And it's, we're closer to death, but we could be closer to healing. I don't know. That's, that's interesting. I, so I have two trains of thought. One is for some communities that metastasized state has been long drawn out. And for others are just filling the lump. Yeah. And, you know, maybe when we're talking about a collective body, um, it makes sense because we need collective healing, perhaps. But so that that was one train of thought. And then I was listening to you and thinking, I wonder what it's like to be a white guy right now. Yeah. Not just a white guy, but a white guy who has perceived himself as part of the hope, who suddenly feels completely on the outside of that hope. 
um, someone who thought they were on the inside of the story, but is feeling on the outside of that story now. Um, I, I think even with the Floyd funeral, uh, and maybe we'll get into how that whole thing came yeah. to us, you know, but I knew in that moment that it would bring, you know, every leader, every organization, we all want people to notice us. We're all trying to get noticed. We're on Instagram, we're PR and stuff. That's why we're trying to figure out creative ways. How can we get the word out about us? Um, and I think the shift in the country has gone from, um, I want to be noticed to, uh-oh, I'm being examined. Mm. And it's a, a completely different posture to be examined as opposed to being noticed. So when we hosted the Floyd funeral, this um, moment, which we'll go into in a second, brought an examination of my life, an examination of the university at a level that took us out of control. Because, you know, all the chaos of my life, I've been able to, I, have, I probably have pretty high emotional intelligence. I can, I think in terms of not how I'm interpreting you, but how am I being interpreted? Yeah. I have to be aware of my behavior. It's not about how, hey man, I'm self-aware, man. I can, I can read the room. I can interpret you. Uh, no, we have to say, how am I being interpreted? And that's what, that's what matters most. And that's the, I think the highest level of leadership, intellect and emotional intelligence is to really care deeply about how I'm being interpreted, not how I'm interpreting. That's part of the examination process. So that examination process broader across the world. And I think, you know, the night before the funeral, uh, I was over here at the, the residence inn and, uh, uh, Reverend Sharpton and Reverend Toon, who was his assistant, myself, and I think there's one other person, Reverend Takoy Porter, were sitting there, the residents, and opened up the hotel for us and for the media because the city shut down. And I'm sitting there talking in the little lobby table, and right behind Reverend Sharpton, Reverend Toon's head is this 75-inch television. And there's one million people marching down the Champs-Élysées in Paris for George Floyd. Then they split screen. There's a million people outside Buckingham Palace uh, on behalf of George Floyd. And two blocks away, that man's life is, is in my auditorium. And the weight and the skill, it wasn't like, hey, this is great. The weight of, you know, dear, dear father in heaven, the weight and the examination that's about to happen. Because when, when we did the funeral, our own flaws as a university, we're 90 years old, you know, we had a reputation uh, up until probably the late 90s of being a racist exclusionary university downtown full of North Dakota kids and nothing wrong with kids from North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, but here we are in the inner city of Minneapolis, but our school is predominantly white, except for maybe 2%, 3%. The previous president uh, cared deeply. Uh, he, he went after this uh, and really he kind of turned the bolt lock. I've kind of turned the knob, but he did turn the bolt lock um, and kind of turned the knob. But we have a lot of kids who went here in the 90s and early 2000s are like, what? What's North Central hosting this funeral for? And so that immediately created enormous anxiety 
uh, for students of color who had attended here in the 90s and 2000s, wondering, because they saw this as a great privilege uh, to host that funeral. And again, we'll get into how it all came here in a sec, but um, it brought an examination that was so healthy for us. I mean, we, our incoming class was 31% students of color this year. So we've seen a tremendous, but it's all at the beginning. And that doesn't mean anything. There's schools with 40, 50% students of color that are going off the rails with racism in, in the school. The numbers, uh, they're important, but they're not, they're not the evidence of, of what we're trying to get to at all. Um, and I get what would you say? What would you say would be the evidence? Uh, the evidence is always the testimony and the story from the students of color that they tell themselves, not that we tell about them. Because what I name something and what you name it is entirely different. And part of privilege and power is like, you know, you have a guy go into a prayer and he's, hey, man, would you pray for my marriage, man? It's struggling. He calls it struggling. The wife's in a prayer meeting and say, hey, can you pray for me? My husband's beating me to, to death. He's hitting me. So what she names it and what he names it is different. And, and the, the privilege of privilege is the privilege to name the sin, is to name the offense by the person that's in power. Like, no, I'm going to name this. But what this has done, it's taken control and power away from, you know, the white male to name it. Yeah. And that is... I think the start of something legitimate. Is yeah, it I, I, I don't think that's over though. No, no, I don't think so. It is. No, yeah. I don't think that reckoning because you're dealing with millions of people. And part of the problem in the country is you see 10 people, 5,000 people do something and we project it to the whole because we have, we can only deal with it as a whole. We see. So I think for us, the challenge of leadership is to get under the microscope uh, work legitimately to say what's happening at the individual relationship in my life, what's happening in the macro, the micro, how do I project the sample size? Is this really a trait of the whole or, or am I moving into hysteria, reality? Is this real? We're all in that space right now and uh, trying to unpack that. But the examination process is necessary and good and the stripping of the control of those who've held the power to name the sin, name the offense, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I was at the memorial and I was examining. <laughs> um, I think that's a good word. I remember you got up and you did your, your prayer and I'm like, okay, who, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, like I haven't really heard much you know, I think I've been in the chapel once or twice before, and I I wanted to know more about how was this place selected? Yeah, was it great, the great place? Great. Was it because it could be secure? Yeah. Was it because of your relationship with a family member? Like what? How did that? Okay. Yeah. So here's the, here's the real story of the Floyd funeral. So um, he died. He was murdered on Monday. And I actually was in Sacramento for Memorial Day weekend. Um, and of course, we were all still, uh, it was the tail end of sheltering in place. We were all still sheltered. So I was running the university offsite. We were closed campus. And so I was in Sacramento where my grandkids are. We have a house out there. And I rolled over in bed on Tuesday morning in Sacramento time, opened my phone and began to read. And within about 60 seconds, I said, dear father in heaven, we're in trouble. If, if I'm interpreting 
this on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery and what was coming out from that story and um, all that was happening, uh, I said, we're in trouble. I said, what am I looking at? And so by then, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday, things erupted at a high level. I flew back on Thursday. So Friday night, I'm in my apartment. I live just right next to the campus here. I live in downtown, uh, right off Hennepin. And um, I was laying there. And so Ellington Porter, who is our, um, on our College of Fine Arts, um, Ellington had joined our staff two years ago. So Ellington and I have been friends for 25 years in Sacramento. So Ellington and his brother, Takoy, the Porter brothers, pastor Genesis Baptist Church, or Genesis Church. Uh, uh, and we have had led the MLK, we've been the executive committee for the MLK committee for 20 years, which we, we've hosted the largest MLK service in the country, 7,000 on Sunday night in Sacramento for years. Uh, and we did the gospel service on Sunday night, Porter Brothers, myself, Bishop Carthen, Bishop Samuel Gordon, and the Porters, we organized the event. Then on Monday, we hosted the, would host the, the march, and we get 30,000 at the march on Mondays. So Sunday is kind of the gospel thing. Monday was more of the civic, um, um, you know, engagement march. And so we had this pattern. So the Porters and I are deep friends. When I came here, Ellington stopped by one day because he was raised in St. Paul, him and, the, him and his brother. And I didn't know they're from St. Paul. I go, all these years in Sacramento, what? And so, so him and Tawana were in town. They came by, met me. Uh, we saw here, gave him a tour of the campus. It was just a great time. Went to dinner. Our music, the, the dean of our music school met him. And, and he said, hey, do you ever think that guy would come here? I said, if you think I'm breaking up the Porter Brothers, you're crazy. I said, I'll never be able to go to Sacramento if I break up the Porter Brothers. They're icons. So I called Ellington. I said, Ellington, this isn't coming from me, but I promise you, but Larry Bach, blah, blah, blah. He says, man, I, it's funny you would say this. So he had had some stirring in his heart. So he had joined in 2018, our staff here. So that's the context. So on Friday night, um, Takoy Porter, who's on Reverend Sharpton's executive team, um, they have a conference call. They've taken over the funeral, uh, the events, they need to find a spot in Minneapolis. So Ellington goes, I'm calling Scott and I'm calling Ellington. I know him, Reverend Sharpen, you can trust Scott. You can trust Ellington. We've, we've done life for 25 years together in Sacramento. So he calls Ellington. Ellington texts me and he says, hey, the Floyd family would like to have a small family gathering next Thursday to grieve in Minneapolis before the big funeral will be in Houston. That was the text. So um, I sat there and honestly, I'm not a fool. I know, I know the political theater that's going on around my world. And you're sitting there as a gatekeeper at, at certain moments in your life. I'm by myself in my apartment because Karen stayed in Sacramento with the grandkids that week. I was just kind of coming back to monitor things. And I go, okay, what's on the other side of my thumb here? Do I say N-O? Do I say Y-E-S? And it comes down to one syllable in one moment. You're by yourself and you go, what is on the other side of this thing? So I had two competing thoughts. Uh, well, I, the first thing I thought was create a table of healing. Your city's burning. And then I thought of the story in the Bible of Elisha, 2 Kings 4. He finds out the man's dead and the sons are being sold. And Elisha says, how can I help? Four, four words. I think he didn't say, how can I prophesy? How can I lead? How can I help? I really felt 
okay, let me check with our board chair, but I think we need to create a table of healing. How can we help our city? Everything's closed. We'd hosted the NFL Super Bowl. The home, we had 1,100 Homeland Security here. We're built for this. We know how to do this. We own the street. We can create Elliot because that's actually our property. We can bear, we can pull this off in a way that would be helpful. Um, so call my board chair, call my general superintendent in Springfield, Missouri, my district superintendent. They said, this is right where Jesus wants us to be. You know, who cares about the political theater? How can we serve? I wasn't thinking really beyond that. There wasn't some strategy like, hey, um, at all. It was like, how can we help a family? I've always opened up my churches for funerals. Funerals, I've had, I've, we had Stevie Wonder. And we, we had everybody, you know, uh, he attended a funeral. He wasn't, he, you know, he, he didn't pass away. But I've had everybody as a chaplain for the Sacramento King. So Chris Weber's a great friend, all these people. How can we help, man, uh, in this situation? So. We said yes, and so then over the next uh, 48 hours, it became a global event that, um, you know, with 500 media requests, and uh, we allowed 300. That's equal to the Super Bowl. We had Lester Holt, NBC Nightly News, the Today Show, BBC, everybody's broadcasting live. So that all happened in three days. So the day before the event, we're behind the scenes opening up the house to help, okay? The day before, I get a phone call from uh, Sharpton's guy, and he says, Hey, uh, Reverend would like you to, to pray a prayer of comfort. I said, Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I don't need to be in this. We, we're here. We're, our team is mobilized. We're here to serve. We're just opening the house. And so I said, I, I have two tremendous African American, uh, um, two of our, we have uh, a wonderful team, but Colin Miller uh, or Dr. Latoya Burrell, the head of our college, our graduate school, I'd like to offer them to offer the prayer. And he says, No, we want you to do it. So now I have a decision to make. Uh, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to have friends of color around the country. Why is Scott Hagen sticking his face in this thing? Uh, I'm going to have white people go, Why, wh what are you doing? Um, and so both those things, and I felt afraid. Uh, I felt a, a real fear go through my stomach about, okay, what next uh, do I do? And so, and the fear was stemmed from you being a white man in this situation. Yes, of like why? Why is North Cent? Why? Why is the president sticking himself in this? Because now we knew it was going to be a global event. It, it, this was like the trucks were out here. Like CNN's going to cover it live. Like I wasn't planning to be part of the funeral. So now, how See, am I? As like people would think that you were trying to amplify your institution, or did you feel also equally uncomfortable in saying? it's not my place. This should be led by and for black people for yes. this. Vote. All, all of that and more, all of that is, okay. is just firing through my head like a popcorn popper. Cause I got to give an answer here quickly. And uh, um, so I, I, um, I, I really settled on this. We have, now we have, you know, a couple hundred students of color on my campus. They're excited. We're hosting the Floyd family. If they find out their president did not want to be seen my, my, my leadership's done. My presidency's over here. No matter what anybody around the country thinks, if my own students perceive me as a coward, I'm, it's over. So, so, and if my own faculty who've come to join me in this journey of transforming the university to be a university that looks like heaven, lives like heaven, it's over for me. So I felt uh, compelled um, to say, okay, 
And I felt like John the Baptist said, man, I'm not supposed to be in this river. Let somebody else do this. And then you realize, nah, I'm tapping you. You got to do this. And so I somehow set aside like projecting out the problematic thing that, that ended up happening at a certain level that you get to and doing that. So then the night before, I'm having coffee with our chancellor and, and her name's Robin Wilkerson. And she says, you know, we should start the George Floyd scholarship. And I thought, what a great way to turn evil into good. Let's, and so that really like that fired me up. Like this is a great way to turn. Yes. Wow. So then I got, then I had this thought, but wait a minute, everybody's going to think I'm trying to make money off George Floyd. So then like, oh my goodness, what do I do? So I was in my apartment by myself. I thought it was a great idea. And I will tell you in that moment, I really felt like God dropped in my heart, do the scholarship and then say, I challenge every university president in this country to do the same so people can give to the college of their choice. Yeah. Instead of, hey, let's see how much cash North Central can make off the Floyd thing. And once I had that secondary piece to this, I go, okay. So I didn't ask Sharpton if I could do it. It was a complete, uh, I did ask his, uh, this wonderful lady who ran the thing. And she said, oh, I got goosebumps. She says, you're going to steal the headlines from Reverend Sharpton. That's unbelievable. This is the greatest thing. What a great idea to generate scholarship money for young black students across the country. So then that's going to happen. I've kind of hit it in my heart. I'm going to get up there. I'm only going to be up there for three minutes. I wrote out my prayer and I inserted this line. And then we're sitting on the front row. Uh, Robin and I, one minute before we start, the security guy comes out and says, hey, listen, Governor Walsh brought his wife, Mayor Fry brought his uh, wife, and the police superintendent uh, chief brought his. We need these roads because we were social distance. It was very tough. We got a variance from the governor and the mayor. No one wanted to sign off on this. We had a very interesting conversation about how were we going to mitigate 50% attendance in this room because the family needed 50%. They needed half the room to be full. So we seat about 1,200. We could space out um, every other seat. This is all early COVID stuff, still trying to figure out the math. So they come in one minute before we start, says we need to move you and Robin to the platform. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I'm on the platform? I, 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 so then that feeling like, oh goodness, here it goes. Now people are gonna think, why is, him, he's sticking himself on the platform. He's speaking. I mean, all of that stuff was real in my head. So we found ourselves on the platform a minute before it started. So um, all then it happens. The funeral happens. The, the prayer and the appeal, the response, you were in the room, the call to all the presidents. And suddenly this new energy filled the room. And I really began to see the hand of the Lord turning, giving anguish a way forward into something beyond the moment. So the scholarship moment, I think, turned the anguish into action is a phrase I've been using. Mm -hmm. um, so then when it was done, I have no idea that there's been 2 billion social media engagements in 60 minutes, the most ever recorded in history from around the world. 2 billion people checked in on social media, largest, this is coming from Goth Public uh, that did all the analytics. 100 million people tuned in at some portion. These are Super Bowl numbers of people. They didn't watch the whole thing, but they checked in on the funeral. 
and 2 billion worldwide on their device checked in on a social media story. Uh, Trent, the scholarship was trending number one um, for about 13 minutes in the world. President challenges all college presidents to uh, establish a Floyd scholarship. I step off the platform and uh, the guy from Goff Public says, hey, Lester Holt wants you on in 45 minutes. The Today Show wants you on. Dale Hughley just called. He wants you on. And of course, all of the Hannity wants you on. And then uh, uh, other ones, NBC, Joy Reid, all these. And I really felt, uh, I, I'm a, I try to consider myself. Now, if I was 48, I would have done it. But at 58, I really felt a check to say, don't do that. Do not go on television. No, don't do this. This is a trap for you. Nobody's trying to trap you, but it's going to be a trap and it's going to redirect the energy. This is a funeral. This is about grieving. This is about pain. This is about a family. This is not about media. This ain't about you. And this will backfire on you, pal, if you do this. So I kindly told him, I'm going to pass on those. I said, I, I don't want to be a face of this, uh, you know, stay, stay in the pastor educator lane. Mm. Stay as a pastor educator. Don't don't get into this other lane. Now, I've done a couple things a couple weeks after uh, Kelly Wright had me on. He does something on CBS. Um, and we talked about it. I'm, this I'm doing with you. Um, Forbes has done a lot. Because what happens is scholarships taken off. There's 45 universities, Minnesota, Michigan, Penn State, Ivy Leagues. All of them attribute it to the, to the uh, North Central University a memorial and the in the President Hagen challenge. So I mean, the la when's the last time Penn State and North Central were in the same story? And so that's happened. Crazy millions has been raised. We had about four hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars sent to us from complete strangers. Uh, some some very wealthy people. I got well, I got three hundred of that was in three one hundred thousand dollar checks, and the other hundred and eighty thousand is in fifty dollar checks from Grandma down in. Uh, Arkansas or Georgia sending me checks just saying they were deeply moved uh, by that. They want to help. So our own institution, about $485,000 came in. All of that money was set aside. And we have Derek Bergen's, our first full ride, full tuition scholarship winner. We're going to give out a full ride every year to our Floyd Scholar winner. Now it's all across America. We're talking about developing kind of the road Scholar thing. We're developing a network of all of the Floyd Scholars around the country will be part of this database that companies can hire. It's so exciting what has happened from that one minute and 12 second conversation about scholarship. It's crazy. Wow. What, what have you learned about the way in which you can use your platform from that? Um, well, <laughs> we, we've had some very, very robust conversations on this. First of all, um, People on both sides of the political aisle, because of what I call the Bermuda Triangle, COVID-19, the racial unrest, and the election has created the Bermuda Triangle. Many leaders are flying into that and they're disappearing because they lack self-control purpose. They, they got outside their lane uh, uh, and really had misguided recklessness, not boldness. And I think they've really diminished their voices because they became so politicized and either so much for Trump or so much hate for Trump or so much worship of Trump. I've tried to not live in the, I don't worship America. I don't reject America. I'm not living in those. I, I live in this other space where 
I, I, I can separate the aspirations of the American ideal from the practice, the evil practice of several and many of the founding fathers of this, of this hypocrisy and duplicity. And I said, in many ways, that's you and I. I was born in the image of God, but I was also born with, I, I am a sinner that can't help but sin. So I've got these two things going on inside me like a nation. So for me, um, that space of influence, um, I've tried not to continue to be trapped by those who want me to, you know, get on, you need to use your platform. You know, you're one of the most influential assembly God dudes. You need to stick your middle finger up at everybody that voted for Trump. Then a person over here saying, dude, you're one of the most influential. You need to expose the Marxism. You need to expose. So they're wanting me to go on Facebook and, and make that my ultimatum is on Facebook. And I've never done that. I've used my platform. Uh, uh, I'm in many settings behind the scenes and publicly um, that I am seeking to, ex- as, I, as I believe I always have, but, but also realizing my message was flawed. Uh, it, it didn't go after the systemic. So the initiatives we're doing through the university, through many universities, the collaborations are trying to change the systemic way that students of color, even down to our curriculum, we realize in this examination, we had very few scholars of color in our in our reading lists. Well, that has completely changed this year, top to bottom. We have made certain that there are at least two of reference books, if not more, but a minimum of two in our curriculum is being implemented. So people are being exposed to great scholarship from black Americans or black leaders worldwide. That sounds like, oh yeah, that's just blah, 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 more academic. It's really not. It, it's, it, it starts to do something in a deeper way. We've started the Bishop's Council here in Minneapolis, uh, bringing them on campus. Found out that one of the leading bishops in this city went here in 1980. Oh wow. Probably the largest African-American church in the city. I, I wanna be careful because I don't wanna misstate myself here, but. I'm with, we have for lunch a bunch of bishops here. He says, you know, I, I graduated from 19. I went, what? You went to North Central? What? He goes, yeah, I got my Bible degree here. I go, how have we not known this? So I'll say this super quick because I'm taking up all your wonderful time here is 2004, we're doing our Christmas letter as a family. And so we get it. We had this routine, go down to Walgreens, get the cheap candy cane paper, print out the letters. We send out, you know, 400 letters. We're putting stamps on kids are watching movies, drinking hot chocolate. Christmas letters going out. Got it three quarters of the way done. My daughter walks over. She's a sophomore in high school at that time. She picks up the letter. She's reading it. We're just talking about the family. She goes, man, mom and dad, that's a great letter. Maybe next year I can be in it. I talked about the boys, football, me traveling, preaching, mama. I left my daughter out of the Christmas letter. So in that moment, I mean, my wife and I, I go, mama, we turned on. Well, mama didn't know what you did. So, you know, we're all scrambling, throwing each other under the bus. And, but it was in all reality. If I told you, I, I said, hey, you know what, Jocelyn, we've already spent a bunch of money on this. Three, these are all stamped things. Next year, I'll get you two paragraphs, sweetheart. I apologize. You would look at me as a parent and say, what a, what a foolish parent. My only response, once I realized the story was incomplete, I was not telling the story correctly. We had to rip up the letter as fast as 
possible, throw away all of our investments and completely start over instantly to demonstrate who my daughter was in relationship to our family. It was funny, but it wasn't. And we salvaged that, that wound uh, by the swift amending of the story. Once we became aware that this is flawed, this is not being told right. So I would also say that I think our approach right now must be the same. Uh, anytime we find out, we're, we're, we're not telling this story accurately about injustice, pr police brutality. Um, I know we, we did this forum uh, uh, with the Colin Kaepernick thing with about 10 leaders around the country in July. Um, and it was fascinating. I shared my epiphany. And I know Colin because he grew up in Turlock. My boys played high school against him. He was at Nevada and he beat my son's team at Cal. So I have a bad feeling about Kaepernick because he beat my son. And then he was the 49er quarterback and we lost the Super Bowl. So I said, I got to get past my feeling. But in all seriousness, um, the flag to men like me represent my grandfather's death in World War II. So I can't disassociate that. It always to do with foreign wars to me. The flag never represented police to me, but that's to me, that's my perspective. To Colin Kaepernick, that flag represented authority and the police to him and the brutality and the disparity represented something different. That flag triggered that. So where the collision has been is how do I disassociate my honor, my grandpa standing up for that flag? I'm thinking about my grandpa where Colin is thinking about his brother that died at the hands of a police officer. So this is the massive collision of paradigms and without humility, it's hopeless. So I had, I was released from my anxiety about the national anthem and kneeling when I really felt I had this epiphany in this understanding that the flag to me represents, but the flag doesn't represent that to this person. And that's legitimate. That's legitimate. They're not dissing my grandfather's death in World War II. So that that whole conversation. And, and that America has not been the same for right. every community, right? Aside from the flag, the experience is dramatically different, right? Yep. That the, the narrative, the history, the contributions, the assets have been left out of the story. Yep. And yep. We're, we're at a point where I think we're reckoning and many, many are saying we're no longer going to accept that as a truth. It's yeah. time to turn, turn the page because it, it can't just be the lies on television. It's the lies that we're doing and, and the way in which we're um, complicit in that, right? Whether or not it's our schools, our school system, you know, African-American history is an elective versus embedded. Like there's all these things, right? I'm with you a thousand percent. I the metaphor I use is this: Imagine you have a house. The father is a little league coach, and they win the championship, and he's coach of the year for his son. And they're going to have a banquet for him, but the daughter's invited that he's molesting. So he's molesting his daughter, but he's coaching his son's team, and the daughter has to participate in this dinner where the father's being hailed as this great coach of the year when behind the scenes, that's the same man that's molesting me. Imagine the psychological conflict in that setting. So America, if America is a house, 
if America is a place, if America is a father, whatever metaphor we want to use, um, I think white people are reckoning the vast discrepancy of experience um, that the cities, when I, when I speak in Christian conferences or leadership conferences in mixed settings, I share that, you know, white people, we really don't give a rat's behind about another white person's plight. That's our privilege. Um, the gift and the prophecy of the black church to the white church, if we want to organize it that way, which I hate organizing it that way, but is the deep concern of the black community to them. Where a white person, a poor person in the Appalachians, somebody does something, I don't care. And I go, why is that? That's my privilege. I don't have to care because I can always live as an individual. I don't have to live as a community. Um, so that that misunderstanding is not a, a lack of enlightenment. It's a rebuke to the white church for their absence of empathy because their privilege has never had to create. Like we care about the inner cities in the sense like I drive around them on my way to a game or on my way to a shopping event in my life, but the black community, church, LeBron James, whatever cares deeply about the black community in the inner city where white people in, in general don't have any empathy for white people that are poor, but that's part of the, they've owned the narrative and they have not had to live with in a collective sense of unity. I don't know. I'm not even saying this right, but I I get the point though. But what, what do you think, you know, as we wrap and, and um, you know, what, what do you, what do you see as the role of faith leaders in a moment such as this? Yeah. We've got to dig into uh, sound biblical doctrine, which has the solution, Uh, not some Rubik's cube doctrine that we have mixed into Uh, this binary political patriotic, you know, I tell people patriotism is kind of the new circumcision. You know, you've got to be, you got to become patriotic to be a Christian. Well, in some ways, I do believe there's a discrepancy between justice and biblical justice. I, it has all the elements, but there is a better way biblically, theologically. We just don't have the guts or the power to speak it and practice it and transfer it into the hearts. I think the church has an enormous space and place. Like when we hosted the Floyd funeral, that was the church uh, creating chaos. The, the mayor, um, uh, I know him well. He, They're looking like, what do we do? The governor, what do we do? So North Central stepped into this space and brought civility, meaning, and some order and a space for this, this insanity to unfold in a way that was purposeful. The church can serve in those spaces and create peace and civility. Um, We can't mask it like that's the solution, but at least it gives us the space to find each other. Jacob and Esau, man, twins, same mother, two empires. He's afraid of his brother, uh, Genesis, I think, 32. He wants to get through him, not to him, gives him a bunch of gifts to soften his heart so he could get by him without the retribution because Jacob had built his wealth on by manipulating people. And now the day of reckoning on this desert road happens. And they meet each other. They, they, they fall in each other's arms. God deals with Jacob. He's crying. 
and, and they fall in each other's arms. And then Jacob says, who are these people? And Esau goes, these are my children. Like, seriously, you're their uncle. And I think there's millions of Christians who can't find each other in this country because we're locked in the shadows of empires. And until we lose the empire and find our family again, imagine you're the uncle and you don't even recognize these children. It's, I think, coming out of those shadows, but God has to deeply deal with the leader's hearts. Uh, I'm not there. I'm being dealt with by the Lord, even as we are on this call. So I just want the dealing to continue in my life. But I, I'm also not going to be uh, uh, just out there like in the wind, a uh, piece of pollen in the wind being driven by culture. Uh, I want to be driven by the Lord and his word from my life and not hide behind a misconstrued idea of that. I know we're, we're talking a lot here, but. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really helpful. I have, you know, I wish I could follow up. Maybe there's a, a part two. Maybe we need to sit yeah. down and have coffee because, you know, we know the interpretation of the Bible has been manipulated. Um, we yeah. know, and, and I think I've heard from you today that, you know, part of, part of you staying in your lane is being faithful and, and sticking to your purpose, sticking to where um, your lane um, I thought that was um, extremely helpful. I think the the story behind the memorial, you know, I often think of your prayer and then Rev talking about the knee has been on the neck of Black Americans for years. And I think symbolically um, and him saying that just was a moment um, in that memorial service. It was, you know, a privilege to be in that space with that family during that time. I remember the commotion when you kind of went up on stage. I kind of, I was sitting not far from there. And even some of the criticism and attacks that uh, our mayor has gotten for kneeling and crying and and how we can politicize grief, however it shows up in, in one's body, um, to delegitimize that I think is unfortunate. And I think it goes to the point that you raised in the beginning around the examination, right? We are in, in examining um, what is happening and we're examining it from our point of view all of the time. And so, you know, I, I just appreciate this conversation. I learned a lot. I, I appreciate getting to know you when, when we can get to a football game, yeah. I'm there. And um, I have to put my plug in for Colin because I definitely would love to have him as a as a guest. So if there's any way you can help with that, I would love to just talk to him about so many things. Um, and I think it would benefit our community. Absolutely. I, I look forward to our paths crossing. And uh, I got some season tickets to the Vikings game. Uh, so we'll have yep. to, when we go back and play, get you to a Vikings game. This year. They're great seats. So Sounds good to me. Enjoy your next event that you've got going. I appreciate your time. I look forward to connecting. That's Dr. Scott Hagen, our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. You can follow Shonda on Twitter or Instagram at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pat Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.